Good Thursday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air tonight. I missed being with you all last night. As the saying goes, sometimes uh, things come up and uh, it's not always a bad thing, but I guess it's not always a bad thing to be on the air every consecutive night. But nonetheless, it's uh, good to be back on the air. And I will tell you this, we've got a lot of ground to cover but then again, we, it seems like we've always had a lot of ground to cover beforehand from the past podcast sessions, but covering all the ground that there is possible on a subject like this one through the perilous fight from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, the six weeks that saved the nation, is very well worth covering. Because I can tell you this right now, people, the War of 1812 just didn't uh, happen in one night. It's been a war that had been coming for many years, especially after we had won our freedom from England. Yes, those of us out there could say, well, why not, why didn't we win our independence? Well, you know, I thought we did win our independence, but it turns out we really had not won our independence on the high seas. So, we are now going to be talking tonight about what is leading up to the Battle of Baltimore. Now, in my uh, previous podcast session, I did talk about a battle at uh, Calk's Field. That was a small battle, but it was a huge uh, success uh, for the um, American forces who had uh, successfully defeated uh, the British at this uh, spot. Um, and And now it seems like the gray clouds have finally been lifted. What I mean by the gray clouds is those clouds of uncertainty, especially along this uh, Chesapeake campaign, because uh, up until Calk's Field, the British had pretty much dominated the whole entire Chesapeake Bay campaign, especially with that infamous uh, defeat or the infamous drubbing that the Americans received not only at Bladensburg, Maryland, but also at our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., which is still in British control, but Hopefully better days are ahead, and I think the battle at Cox Field is the start of that. So, we're going to talk about Fort McHenry a good deal uh, tonight. What is the name of the fort in Baltimore, which will eventually make history for all the right reasons? Uh, I, I hate to say this, I think I may have just given it away a second ago, but I'll just say it again. Fort McHenry. Now, Was Fort McHenry built well before the War of 1812? The answer is yes. It was first built in 1798. And who was president during this time in 1798? John Adams. Now, Fort McHenry was built on the same site where Fort Whetstone had defended the city from 1776 to 1797. The fort itself was designed by a Frenchman named Jean Fonsin. I hope I got got my French um, pronunciation right, especially with the last name. I think it's a good try. But anyways, yes, Mr. Jean Jean Fonsin uh, designed uh, Fort McHenry. And the purpose of this fort was to improve the defenses surrounding the port of Baltimore from potential or what we might call deadly attacks by enemy forces. 
So, for whom is Fort McHenry named after? He, Fort Mc, the fort itself is named after American statesman James McHenry, who served as our nation's first Secretary of War from 1796 to 1800. So in a short span of about four years, James McHenry served under Presidents Washington and Adams, or should I say Presidents George Washington and John Adams. He was also a signer of the U.S. Constitution. So here's a bonus question. Is James McHenry still alive during the time of the War of 1812? Yes, he is. He is still alive. Do you think he is concerned about uh, Baltimore's future like everyone else? Absolutely. And I would think that he would be definitely concerned about the fort itself, especially the fort that is named after him. Now, uh, who is the garrison commander of Fort McHenry? His name is Major George Armistead. Now, Major George Armistead, I found this to be interesting, he is the son of a Virginia planter. He has served in the Army for 15 years at various posts around the United States. It turns out he has strong ties to Fort McHenry and Baltimore. His wife just so happens to be the daughter of a prominent Baltimore merchant. Well, I think it's safe to say that his marriage is a match made in heaven. After all, Major Armistead is the son of a Virginia planter. His wife is the daughter of a prominent Baltimore merchant. I would say that there is a lot of old money that goes well and hand in hand with this marriage. And what I mean by old money is that People don't need to flaunt what they have. If they know that they already have the money, they, they do things privately with it to, for, that results in the better, um, what do you call it, in better things that will uh, benefit, say, a, a greater community or a city as a whole. Well, uh, Major Armistead helps um, play a vital role on the Niagara frontier early on in this war. He leads the um, capture of Fort George, and the capture of that fort led to his promotion to major. So by the year 1813, George Armistead not only becomes a major, but he is given full command of Fort McHenry. And is it safe to say that um, Major George Armistead is going to be a, an effective commander for Fort McHenry? The answer is yes. I would assume that given that just how bad um, things went at Bladensburg and Washington, that you're not going to have a whole lot of time to screw around, not just with what happened at Bladensburg and Washington in terms of those debacles, but you don't want another repeat now. You know that, that the well-being of your country is at stake, and not just at stake, it could be at stake for a variety of reasons, but knowing that the country as a whole its uh, overall um, existence is what's at stake. Not just the government, it's the country as a whole. Remember, people, the British just don't want to defeat one city. I think it's safe to say their objective now is that if they were to defeat us in Baltimore, that they could capture every other major coastal city north and south of Baltimore. That includes Philadelphia, Boston, Newport, Newport Rhode Island, Salem, Marblehead, Massachusetts. 
the bottom line is the British, if they are able to, de- to defeat us at Baltimore, they've got our country on the rope so bad that we may never be able to um, have any kind of uh, existing government that is for the people and by the people. Well, another person of uh, significant um, noteworthy um, prominence to mention is a Captain Joseph Nicholson. He is the commander of Fort McHenry's Baltimore Fencibles. Now, who are the Fencibles? Almost in some ways, it sounds like the Untouchables. Well, the Fencibles are a volunteer artillery company. They come from many of Baltimore's finest families, ranging from merchants, tradesmen, to bankers. And these families were defending their not just their homes, but, their, but the wealth in other words, they're defending, not, and we're not just talking personal valuables at home, they're defending the city's overall livelihood. Think about it. People have to go to banks. They have to rely on merchants who will um, do business with them in terms of their goods you know, shipping out or you know, goods coming in. I mean, people's livelihoods are at stake now. So we're not just talking one sector, we're talking the whole nine yards. And as for uh, Joseph Nicholson, he comes from a well-to-do Maryland Eastern Shore family. He is um, a judge on Maryland's highest court, and it's probably safe to say that that would be most likely the Maryland State Supreme Court. Now, what's significant about September 10th of 1814? More than 50 British ships are spotted sailing north toward Baltimore. 50. Should that raise a red flag right there? Absolutely. Are the American military forces ready for the inevitable? And what's the inevitable, people? It's the battle for Balt- the Battle of Baltimore. The answer is yes. After Ma- I read this here. After Major George Armistead spots 30 British vessels near the mouth of the Patapsco um, River, he begins to instruct all garrisons to man their stations. Okay, this is a good first step. Now, as for Major General Samuel Smith, was he taken by the surprise with the speed of the British fleet? Yes, he was. But then again, I think most um, American um, military commanders would have been taken by surprise with how quickly the British fleet has um, gone about um, moving, especially north towards Baltimore. So Major Smith, I should say Major General Smith, goes about having three alarm guns being fired from the courthouse green And this is also an indication that for troops to gather, church bells were ringing to the beating of to the beating of drums. um, I should rather I should say church bells ringing to the beating of drums and couriers rushing to spread the news of the British fleet allow American troops to get a fast move on where they need to go in terms of being stationed. So we can't have people. from one direction saying, oh, the British are coming. Who remembers that famous saying? Well, it was said by that famous midnight writer, Paul Revere, 
back in 1775 when he rode through Lexington and Concord, warning uh, the fellow uh, people, warning his fellow people uh, that, hey, the British are coming. And it's not just, oh, the British are coming, you, we need to be prepared. So it's safe to say now that um, people can do more than just ride on horseback and warn uh, the communities. Church bell, the church itself can play a big part by ringing the bells. Um, people's drum, if you have drums, um, in terms of military purpose, you can beat your drum to say, hey, let's get a move on it. Those of you who know what's going on, um, assemble a force. And yes, people can still move on a horseback to spread the news. The bottom line is, if, if you know an attack is imminent, do something about it in terms of warning people in enough time. Well, where did Major General Samuel Smith believe the British would launch their attack on Baltimore? He believed that the attack itself would come through the Patapsco Neck, which is a 10-mile-long peninsula going northwest from the Chesapeake Bay to Baltimore. But here's a good thing, though. Major General Samuel Smith will not allow himself to be fooled. He's already laid out his defense scheme. Now, I know uh, for some of you out there in the audience, you're probably wondering, how, much, how come so much detail has been analyzed through all these uh, podcast sessions, including this one? Well, we got to remember, though, folks, that this, the battle for Baltimore wasn't just a one-day thing. You know, it's one thing to fight an enemy, but this isn't cowboys and Indians. You know, we're not, these aren't small, just little skirmishes and that's it. This is a matter of national security. So in order to understand the circumstances that we're in now, we have to learn about where we came from in the, in the past, like with the the unfortunate uh, incidents at uh, Bladensburg in Washington to understand how we are rising from the ashes to now become a better country, not just in terms of military preparedness, but for better national unity, but also how we are going to um, be able to emerge as a um, rising um, international power that will come with time but this is a situation now that can actually perhaps graduate us from being a third world country to perhaps a second world. So anyways, um, what the game plan for Major General Samuel Smith is that he's going to keep more than 10,000 men being the bulk of his force upon Hampstead Hill, which is a part of uh, Fort McHenry. It's not like right next, smack dab next to it, but it, it uh, overlooks Fort McHenry. It's not far by. And I think this is a smart move to keep the vast majority of your men on Hampstead Hill because if you send all of your men down into one direction, good luck having all those men who weren't shot or wounded get back alive. So in other words, you don't want to send all of your uh, men in one place. You need to have them spread out, but you also need to have them be prepared, ready to go. Now, the vast majority of these 10,000 men are, are militiamen from Maryland, and historians do know that there are about 2,600 Virginia militiamen as well as 1,000 Pennsylvania militiamen. 
There are about 900 U.S. Army regulars from the 36th and 38th Regiments who are veterans of Bladensburg. And don't think for one second that those 900 U.S. Army regulars want their shot at revenge big time, especially knowing what happened in the um, debacle that led to the burning of Washington. Now, in order to be successful, that is for Major General Samuel Smith, he's going to have to find the best militia brigades or just the best group of men who are going to be able to uh, block a British invasion. So he's going to end up going with the third or what's called the City Brigade. This comprises of 3,200 men. They are all from Baltimore. Their uh, background is very strong. They are clerks, blacksmiths, laborers, sailmakers, carpenters, merchants to apprentices. So it's probably safe to say that especially those who are merchants, they probably can be from some of Baltimore's finest families. In other words, by having all these men being 3,200 men all from Baltimore, they know the ins and outs to the city. They know how to go about being prepared for war. So you want to have the best of your best up front. If you don't have the best of your best, then you're playing with fire. That's why it's better to have a vast majority of the militiamen up on Hampstead Hill. And it's and to make a comparison, even in the American Revolution, we take, for example, British General uh, Lord, uh, or should say British General Charles Cornwallis. He had no respect for the militia, but yet it's safe to say that militiamen weren't afraid to um, go um, head-to-head with the redcoats. But it also depended on the battle and, and how the strategy was lined up. So um, we're going to now find out about another um, American um, military uh, commander who is a very, very uh, pivotal one, and he does have experience. His experience, or should I say his military career, dates back to the American Revolution. His name is Brigadier General John Stricker. He is commanding the City Brigade. He is an experienced officer. And as I said a second ago, his career dates back to the American Revolution. He fought in Revolutionary War battles at Princeton, New Jersey, Brandywine, Pennsylvania, and Monmouth, New Jersey, or what was known as Monmouth Courthouse. He serves under Major General Samuel Smith for many years and was second in command of the Maryland troops who were sent to put down that infamous Whiskey Rebellion back in 1793 in western Pennsylvania. The 5th Maryland Regiment, or what's known as the Baltimore Rifle, and the Baltimore Rifle Battalion are the heart of the brigade, and they are pretty much ready to get revenge after that debacle at Bladensburg. I would say everyone who had fought at Bladensburg is ready for revenge. If they're not ready for revenge right now, then I'm not sure why they should even be on a battlefield. Now, um, what is essential about September 12th? It's the official day for which the Battle of Baltimore officially uh, begins. At around 7 a.m., the British begin landing in full force at North Point. Brigadier General John Stricker 
on the American side sets up battle lines across or a battle line for his side across the narrow neck along the woods facing the open fields of Bolden Farm. The 5th Maryland is anchors the right flank. The Union artillery is in the center with six field guns across North Point Road. The 27th Regiment is placed on the left side, the 51st Regiment on the right, and the 39th Regiment on the left, and the 6th Maryland is in reserve. Now, I know many, I, I don't expect you all to remember this, and I don't perhaps maybe expect myself to remember it long term, but the reason why I mention all of this right here is because there again, we're not going to put all of our forces in one direction, that is being the center. This is not going to be the same kind of traditional uh, tactical uh, maneuver like most of us have seen from famous Revolutionary War battles where troops would um, line up uh, soldier to soldier in a straight line. And of course, as my father would say, why would you walk into a line, or line of fire and start fighting? Sometimes I've said to him, you know, Dad, the reason they did that was because if you didn't place men side by side, how could you get an accurate volley when firing against the opposition? In other words, if you had one man 25 yards away from another, and do you expect to get a, an even volley on the same field? No. But in this case, the terrain is different. You've got to have uh, regiments all in different directions. And why so? Because you want to find, you've got to find ways to um, surprise the enemy. You've got, you know, just when the enemy thinks that everybody's in the center, you've got to have um, teams of uh, soldiers on the right side and the left side. Basically, you've got to have um, soldiers in what are called rear flank positions. This is the ambience of military fighting. Just when the center may fold, the left and the right can come in and either surprise you from one of those directions or they can um, come into the center and still be able to hold ground. So here's a good question. Where are Rear Admiral George Coburn and Major General Robert Ross? <laughs> They're having breakfast at a farmhouse known as the Gorsuch Farmhouse. I think the Gorsuch family um, might be in on something. In other words, they are being nice to uh, Rear Admiral uh, Coburn and Major General Robert Ross, but for all we know, they could be luring those two men and his forces into a trap. Major uh, General Robert Ross received a warning from three American cavalry scouts about the defense buildup in Baltimore. Ah, see? Here we go. Perhaps these three American cavalrymen, or scouts, I should say, were probably wanting to get captured on purpose, and by doing so, to share information with the British that would make them go on the offensive. Well... What does Major General Ross do? He ignores what these cavalry scouts have to say. Ross assumes that all troops, regardless of size, were militia, which he has no respect for whatsoever. Okay, do any of you out there truly believe that Major General Robert Ross will be in for a rude awakening? He will be in for a rude awakening. Do you think it's one that he will regret, not just in the short term, 
but perhaps for the long term, uh, the answer is yes. The irony to it all, though, is that Major General Robert Ross himself was planning on attacking Baltimore. The problem was that he was going to wait and do it the next day on the 13th. He, this is another missed opportunity. Think about it. We, the British have now gone, let's see, folks, about, about just over four weeks now since Washington's burning. The British have missed out on some major opportunities. I think it's safe to say by now this war should have been over. How so? Well, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, and I'll state this again, right after Washington was burned, either on that same night or, or just the day after, there should have been forces going northeast into Baltimore. They should have taken the people of Baltimore by surprise. Had they done this, this war would have been over. Baltimore would have been burnt. And I'm not so sure that we even would have a United States. So even the mightiest empires or the mightiest military forces can experience some major blunders. And this is a blunder right now that's going to eventually come back and bite the British. So did Brigadier General John Stricker launch a surprise attack on the Gorsuch farm where Major General Robert Ross and Rear Admiral George Coburn and their troops are currently stationed? The answer is yes. Here's, um, here's the inevitable right here. Major General Robert Ross stands upon a knoll. And what is a knoll, people? It's that round natural hill or mound. Not to get ahead of history here, but whenever I think of a knoll, I often think of that infamous grassy knoll where supposedly on November 22nd of 1963... Our nation's 35th president, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Of course, he was sadly assassinated on that, um, on that day. But when I think of Grassy Knoll, I think of that infamous Grassy Knoll around Dealey Plaza in Dallas, where supposedly a shooter was lying in the Grassy Knoll, had fired the fatal shot that shot President Kennedy in the head. Again, I know I'm getting ahead of myself with history, but whenever I think of a, of a knoll, that is the first thing that always comes to my mind. Well, anyways, as for Major General Robert Ross, he is standing upon a knoll. He's overlooking the American position with his spyglass, only to be shot. I kid you not. He is shot by members of the Independent Blues Unit Force, the Independent Blues are a part of what we might call a special uh, team operation. They might be like the equivalent of a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL of their, of their time. How Major General Robert Ross gets shot, it's through a tactic known as buck and ball. I had no idea that there was such a term, buck and ball. As a matter of fact, I uh, learned about the term when having read this book. So I will tell you all briefly what buck and ball means. It is a method of load. A method of load was to combine devastating impact. And the type of devastating impact was between a 50 to a 75 caliber ball. 
which improved target accuracy up close, but it also increased the lethal impact. So in other words, when, when one shot, when one fired a shot from their rifle, with this uh, type of caliber ball being between a 50 and a, 70, and a .75 caliber ball, the intensity in terms of a lethal impact increased dramatically. And as for Major General Ross, the bullet that entered his body, it passed through his right arm and went straight into his chest, breaking ribs and puncturing roughly one lung. That is a horrific wound right there, people. And I think we have to be reminded, so often we forget that in warfare, even in the 18th and 19th century, when one was hit by a bullet, it, the bullet itself just didn't go in, in one direction. Just because you fired straight on, it didn't mean that when you were hit, it just stayed there. I often like to say that bullets are not like darts. You can throw your dart at the dartboard, and it will go in one direction, but when you fire a bullet, it doesn't go in one direction. It may start out going in one, but it will find a way um, to maneuver to a different direction. Sometimes even the, the wind speed can direct a bullet in a different direction. Bullets have a mind of their own in terms of how they, um, how they, uh, how you go about how they set foot once being fired out of the um, rifle or out of any uh, kind of gun. But this uh, wound that Major General Robert Ross receives is a very, very life-threatening wound. The Americans don't know this yet, but he is pretty much um, on his deathbed because right after he shot, I mean, it is, it is very, very painful. Now, did both sides being American and British forces engage in heavy, heavy firing towards one another. Yes, American forces didn't back down. And that was a very good thing because even Rear Admiral George Coburn is surprised by this. He's even, he credits American troops for holding their ground without running in fear because he was, you know, he was so used to seeing Americans uh, running in fear even if they saw British um, forces coming miles away, even if a shot hadn't been fired, he finally sees that perhaps the American troops have graduated from boys to men. The death of Major General Robert Ross is a huge blow to the British military. And... He officially is confirmed dead around 7.30 on the evening of uh, September uh, 12th, that is. It, it's, um, it, th this is a huge victory, though, for the Americans, knowing that they've killed one of, their, one of Britain's uh, top prime uh, commanders. And if there's anything that the uh, Americans accomplished on this day was that there, our forces had slowed the British advance and, and had inflicted 46 casualties, including 295 wounded. That is a huge number of wounded soldiers. 
you know, it's interesting. We're always led to believe that um, that uh, casualties are greater than wounded. It turns out that it's more often than not the opposite. That the casualty, that the uh, wounded, will be greater than the casualties. Just because you get shot, it doesn't mean you're dead right away. It also depends on where you're hit. But still, to lose 46 men, that's a big uh, loss right there for the British. As for September 13th of 1814, it will bring more uncertainty. But there will, there will still remain a light at the end of the tunnel, especially for Francis Scott Key and his mission. And remember, Dr. William Beans has already been freed. The, the bad part to it, though, is that Francis Scott Key, Dr. Beans, and um, some other prominent men, including the um, nine-man crew, are all um, aboard the ship that they sailed um, into Baltimore on, but they are still being monitored by the British ships next to them. So there is some consolation for Francis Scott Key, but there's really not 100% consolation just yet. Well, we've still got more to talk about, but we're not ending here. Uh, we've got um, some uh, another segment here to talk about, and I figured that it would that it would be best to get this one in for tonight. So this way, we are advancing our cause a little bit further more in terms of uh, where we stand, leading up to um, the us uh, that the, the uh, skirmish, or not just a skirmish that that sounds more a one on one, but the actual battle um, at Fort McHenry, which is still considered the battle for Baltimore. So on September 9th of 1813, British ships being those of what are known as bomb ships begin stationing themselves in the water off Fort McHenry. There are about five bomb ships in place. They range, the names of these ships, I like these names, range from Devastation, Terror, Volcano, Aetna, to meteor. It sounds like these ships are all about inflicting uh, major, um, uh, what do you call it, um, terror. What are bomb ships? They are a type of wooden sailing naval ship which specializes in the bombarding of fixed positions on land. Well, Fort McHenry is a good example. What is the main armament to these bomb ships? The answer is not cannons. They are mortars. The mortars on these five ships ranged from 10 to 13 pounds, or not 10 to 13 pounds, I should say, ranged from 10 to 13 inches. They are capable of firing 200-pound explosive shells as far away as two and a half miles. Now, two and a half miles doesn't seem like a whole lot, but if you but if you have a bomb ship and and you're capable of firing a 200-pound explosive shell or sh or shells of that weight as far away as two and a half miles, think about how much damage those explosive shells can do, not just to a military fort but perhaps to a community. 
The British ship uh, Volcano, which was one of these five bomb ships, was armed with a bomb known as a carcass. Uh, <laughs> when I think of carcass, I usually think of a, you know, a dead animal. I often tend to think of uh, seeing vultures on the side of the road uh, feeding off of a dead animal's carcass. I know that doesn't sound very pleasant to, to mention, but I was shocked to find out that, um, that there was a type of bomb known as a carcass. And so anyways, a carcass was a hollow shell with flammable ingredients such as pitch, powder, sulfur, and saltpeter. All these ingredients just mentioned are capable of burning a city. I don't think I would want to mess with this kind of a bomb, especially knowing with all the right ingredients how much terror that would inflict upon in terms of innocent civilians. Now, is Rear Admiral George Coburn flat-out 100% convinced that Fort McHenry isn't going to survive the onslaught of the British bomb ship bombardment? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, even Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane himself is convinced that Fort McHenry would fall in nearly two hours. I, I believe the British are acting very cocky and arrogant. Yes, they may have uh, five bomb ships, but that doesn't automatically guarantee that you're going to win. As for Fort McHenry, we talked earlier about how it got its name after uh, James McHenry, who was our nation's first Secretary of War, to Presidents John Adams and uh, George Washington. But as for Fort McHenry, let's talk about a little bit of it about its geographical uh, history. Its guarded water approach to Baltimore from the tip of Whetstone Point to where the ferry branch led to the west of the city and the northwest branch led to the harbor. So the fort itself is a pentagon-shaped structure which got the nickname Star Fort. I think it's safe to say Fort McHenry is... To, it was its early version of today's U.S. Pentagon in Washington, D.C. Fort McHenry has five bastions. The bastions themselves were designed to protect shoreline batteries, which served as the first line of defense against land assault. The fort's brick walls surrounded a powder magazine guardhouse and it also included two enlisted men's barracks and officers' quarters. And if you know what quarters means, we're not talking money. We're talking about quarters meaning their uh, dwellings or their place of, um, or their rooms to where they could discuss strategy on how to go about um, implementing um, attacks to um, better defense fortifications. But in 1813, the French military loaned the city of Baltimore 56 big naval guns from a warship, or what was known as a man-of-war ship that was, got wrecked off the Virginia Capes, known as the L.A.O.L. Or the L.E.O.L. Now, who will oversee the building 
or should I say oversee renovations to Fort McHenry. That is Major General Samuel Smith. He will oversee the building of two shore batteries and furnaces for heating shot, acquiring gun barges to setting up river lookouts. Now, the three-gun battery that is constructed across, across the water from Fort McHenry at Lazaretto Point. What's interesting about this? Lazaretto Point will give the Americans far greater ability to lay deadly crossfire on enemy ships trying to approach the harbor. So let's just think about this. Just because you have a fort, it doesn't mean that you... I mean, yes, protect your fort. Do everything there is to make it well fortified, but you've got to think about the outside dwellings that are on the outskirts of the fort that are nearby. This is where we are doing a really good job of getting the upper hand so that when it, come to, when it comes time to um, go to war with the British on the, um, on the, on the um, water surrounding Fort McHenry, we're going to know how to um, um, navigate uh, things in terms of where the British are going to launch their mortars and how to um, respond back in terms of firing. Now, in 1813, Major George Armistead takes over the command post at Fort McHenry. Now, uh, what element or piece, or should I say essential piece, is missing over the Star Fort or what we call Fort McHenry? A flag. Who does the military call upon to have a flag made? The answer is... Um, a lady named Mary Pickersgill. She had flag-making in her blood. And how ironic that she was born in the year 1776. All of us should know about 1776. The year the Continental Congress declared its separation from England with that infamous document, or that famous document, that Thomas Jefferson was the author of. The Declaration of the uh, the Declaration of Independence. So, nonetheless, that's a great year to be born in. So, Mary Pickersgill is a child of the American Revolution. Her own mother, uh, being Rebecca Young, helped out the uh, war um, helped out the war cause, rather I should say, by making flags to uniforms and blankets for the Continental Army in Philadelphia. Uh, let me ask you all this. Were the flags at Fort McHenry standard slash ordinary size? No. Mary Pickersgill herself would sew two flags. Of course, she would have others assist her with this project. I don't believe one person alone could sew two flags. And we're not talking your standard uh, portable size flags here. We have what's called a garrison flag and a storm flag. The largest of the two is the garrison flag at 42 feet long and 30 feet high. The storm flag will be a smaller flag at 25 feet long and 17 feet high. Fort McHenry needs to have, have a flag, and the reason for that is, is because if we don't have a flag, how are we going to show the British 
that we're willing to take them on, that we're willing to stand up, not just for the people around us, but for the country as a whole. So why did forts and ships fly big flags? Okay, here's the answer, people. To show a sign of power and make clear to both friend and foe who was in control. If we didn't have a, have a flag flying over Fort McHenry, that is a flag of our own country, I think it's safe to say that the British would have seen Fort McHenry as their fort. Okay, these guys, being the Americans, don't, uh, they want to fight us, but yet they don't have enough courage to wave one of their own flags. So by putting this flag high up into the air above Fort McHenry, we are proving to the British that, hey, we're going to give you all we've got and we're not going to surrender. And I think it's true to say this now. Does anybody know that faint one of, one of the uh, lines to the Star Spangled Banner? I don't want to give it away now, but I, I probably should just say this part here. Gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Let's think about that. What is on Francis Scott Key's mind more than anything else? He's worried about the country. I mean, a lot of people are worried about our country's safety. But he in particular is very worried. On his way to Baltimore, he saw, as I mentioned from a previous podcast, on his way to Baltimore, he saw Washington being burnt. I mean, he left Georgetown, so he's going through uh, Bladensburg in Washington. He sees the Capitol still in ruins. He sees every other governmental building in ruin with the exception of the Patent Office. As a matter of fact, that's where the where Congress met. Uh, thank heavens, Congress had a place to meet, and that's where they met. The Supreme Court did too. Everybody met there. If it weren't for the Patent Office, I don't know where we would have been meeting. So he's going through Bladensburg, and he sees dead bodies or dead American bodies or bodies of dead American soldiers. So he's really very, he's, he, we could say he's having anxiety for all we know over what tomorrow will bring, not just what tomorrow will bring, but what a couple of months might bring. The bottom line is these are trying times. And of course, Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, he's already passed on but I think it's safe to say that if Thomas Paine were alive during this time, he would have said the same thing again. These are the times that try men's souls. And here we are, a second war for independence. These are times that try men's souls. Like Francis Scott Key, John Stuart Skinner, Major General Samuel Smith, General... George Armistead, John Stricker, the list goes on and on. Even Captain Oliver Hazard Perry to uh, Captain John Rogers to David Porter. Everybody, everyone's um, soul is being tried right now. Well, uh, how much did, um, here's a good bonus question to wrap up tonight's discussion or podcast, I should say. How much did money did Mary Pickersgill receive for her work on both flags? 
For the garrison flag being the tall flag, she received $405.90. That's a lot of money, considering how much, how many hours she put in, she and her staff did, but $405. And as for the storm flag, she received $168.54. So let's put it to you this way, folks. She received about $574.44 total for her work. That's a that's a good, um, perhaps close to a year's wages of stuff in 1814. But she was willing to um, stick her own neck out for the safety of our country. If it weren't for her, I'm not sure who would have um, designed us some flags. After all, Fort McHenry has got to be standing tall and mighty because the people there are going to be taking on one of the world's mightiest navies. And we'll be talking more about when the fighting actually begins on the, um, on the seas in the Battle of Baltimore. And we will soon be talking about how Francis Scott Key got inspired to do something that we listen to at sporting games or just events in general that require it to be played. Something we shouldn't be taking for granted. Thank you for letting me um, share with you the information I um, presented to you all tonight. We have covered a lot of ground, and um, ha everyone have a great evening. Stay safe. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care, and God bless.